Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Highlands Hawk. My name is Sandy, joined by my boy Mitch Wolf as we get deep into the talk about all things surrounding college sports. We got NIL transfer portal coaches, all everything you can think of, a big, broader discussion today. Mitchell, how are we feeling? You know, we're feeling good. I got an awesome conversation with one of my best friends and co-hosts on his birthday today. Big shout out, Sam's 20 right now. Still acts like he's five sometimes, but you know, uh, still 20. Uh, no, but we got a lot of college talk today. We're going to get in detail of all the new rules that have came out recently and how they've impacted the economics, the players, the coaches, just the industry as a whole. And for us being students on college campuses with Division One sports, it's really relevant to us. So, Sam, I want to get started talking about NIL. For those of you who don't know, NIL is names, images, and like image and likenesses. And in 2019, the California Supreme Court ruled that in NCAA versus Alton, that Alston, I believe, was the name, that you cannot, that not giving money to the players for, for, for their names, images, and likenesses violates it, would be an antitrust violation. So the NCAA, as of July 1st, 2021, voted to allow athletes to start making money off their names, images, and likenesses, which we wound up seeing promptly with thousands of division one division two division three athletes getting all different kinds of deals we saw it anywhere from apparel to health and beauty to tech to restaurants even there's so many different i found it was just general outsourcing in jet it was just general outsourcing of any sort of company brand that wanted to find a way to profit off this athlete from something as crazy as like Meet UMass's Noah Fernandes, right now the spokesperson for five college movers, which is a moving company in the area. Like something as absurd and abstract as a freaking moving company can profit off these athletes. Yeah, and I think it's good for the athletes because they're getting like we're we're, we're talking about this, right? How much money are are college athletes bringing in for their school? Like, what's their value? And now, at least in summer, campuses are putting are especially Division One schools specifically. We're talking specifically. Division one schools, they're funneling a crap ton of money into these programs, the arenas, facilities. So much money goes into that. Yeah, Sam. And in general, we talk about this. It's also really our first academic season because it's been many months, our first collegiate season. Football's already done. Basketball in the waning. Baseball just starting now and all the spring sports as well. But what have we seen a lot of in these past couple months with these with NIL in place and athletes able to benefit off themselves. Seeing athletes, I guess, where if let's take the NBA for example, the NBA is very much in a place the player empowerment movement is in full swing. Like players are at a point where they're essentially running the running organizations. Like Kevin Durant is running the Brooklyn Nets. LeBron James is running the Los Angeles Lakers for whatever LeBron's, you want to believe. LeBron's been running his team since Miami, but like, let's, let's put that aside for a second. So, but besides that, we see athletes sort of like, because of the discrepancy, how much coaches are making athletes realize I, you are profiting off me as a university, as a sport. Doing the thing that I love, I deserve to at least have some, somewhat of a substantial income to be able because you look at the schedule of a college athlete, it is not. They have to change their entire schedule, not by their own volition, to abide by a certain standard to do what they have to do. And not all of these guys, 
even going to be professionals, Mitch, not a lot of these college athletes get to the next level even. Yeah, and I think that's why we've seen numbers of college athletes dwindling in recent years for just pure lifestyle sake, right? I'm not sure how many of your friends that are on teams that you've talked to on your campus, but I know like here they have like the schedules are a bit ridiculous. 530 wake up. <laughs> 5.30 wake up. You're in the gym before breakfast. You have early classes. Then you after class, you're either doing homework or you're training. Then you're at lunch. Then you're doing class again, homework, training, and then you're doing another session at the end of the day and you're going to bed early. So it's a lot, but it's an experience, right? And this is what you play for. You want to come and play at a D1 level regardless of the school. And then we'll get into the discrepancies between the different variable D1s in a bit, in a bit when we talk about finances more. But this is a lot on them. And these schools make a couple hundred million dollars, somewhere in the hundreds of million, some of the hundreds of million dollars, like the big power five schools, SEC, ACC, Pac-12, Big Ten, Big 12 are making a lot of money, like make significant dollars off of these players. And right. And we've seen a lot of things like what impacts have we seen, Sam? Cause I've seen a handful. I'm curious what you've seen in terms of how the player movement has changed in this past year or two regarding this. Let's focus more on the recruiting side now. We're in after we'll dip into the transfer portal a little bit. Dating back to for a while now, college athletes have always been, especially power five schools have been tied to a few financial scandals in terms of recruiting players. Like there's always, there's always has been skepticism around the money surrounding it. Like have you, how much have you paid? Like DeAndre Aiden back in Arizona when he was there. I mean, there's still Cam Newton, Cam Newton when he was at Auburn. There's a James whole, Wiseman. Wiseman. there's a whole, there are just a whole list of players where we see that they can sort of be, bought over and sort of sniff under the NCAA's nose. But when you see the NC, I think the NIL in a sense is sort of there to help minimize the potential for that because the players are able to sub profit off their name. Coaches will be less inclined to sort of that sort of corruption to sort of be able to break the system. And it's a more natural progression for players to go to schools, not because they're getting bribes a certain amount, they're promised a certain amount that the NAL can be enticing given like the market you're in, the opportunities presented to you to build up your brand. It's a real thing now. And it like it built up a lot of schools that may not be as prestigious, but in the good market places. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting point because right. We know the power five are always going to have traction, right? You look at it. Clemson's a sexy school. If you're an, if you're a football player, right? Michigan's always a sexy school, regardless of what you're doing. Duke UNC for basketball, baseball, Vandy, sexy school. Georgia Tech, Georgia, Alabama, football, right? What? UMass for hockey. But we're talking Power Five right now, so that's not relevant at the moment, right? Because we know where the, let's be real, the money is at a couple sports. And I think, like, and to me, the impact is money talks, right? And if you're able as a coach to convince in the recruiting process that the NIL money coming in is going to be significantly at school A than wherever else you would have gone, that's a big factor, especially coming from kids who would not be able from athletes who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford the schools they were going to without it. Right. Cause if you're going like in state, right. And there's a reason at Rutgers, a lot of our athletes are from New Jersey and not in the surrounding area, obviously distance to home recruitment among others. But if you're not on scholarship, in-state tuition is a big factor for a lot of different places. Right. If I'm from Maryland and I'm a five-star recruit, but I'm not, I'm not a five-star, I'm a three-star recruit. This is an example, and I'm not going to wind up getting a full scholarship. 
it's much easier for me to say to go to UMD or a smaller school in Maryland first than to go out of state. And I think this allows this allows them to get some sort of sense that they might be able to make some money and at least put give their family something in return. And I think on the business side of things, for a lot of local businesses specifically on college campuses, it's a great opportunity for brand recognition. Mark, you have obviously marketing and promotion, right? Like I know a couple of basketball players here have deals with some of the restaurants. And it's like, oh, if Geo Baker hits like X percent of shots, I could be making that up. I don't know the exact, like I know there's certain like incentives, like if player X hits stat oh, yeah. Y in a game, then you get Z percent off on your next order or like a free taco at, at El Jefe Stockier or like something like that, right? And these restaurants have a way to do it. Clothing companies, tech companies. I was just reading something earlier about this company called Vico Tech, I believe was the name out of Atlanta and Georgia Tech. They give them like a $404 stipend because of the area code for like stuff. And they get them a meal plan, like a, a meal thing. They get a 4K streaming device. They get like silk pajamas, like stuff that's like actually usable. And then because all these athletes are wearing it, if I'm on a college campus, oh, if all these elite D1 players are wearing this, I want this too. And I think it's good on, I think it's a benefit for a lot of people, but uh, the, the NCAA is already looking to reforming the rules after one season. And it's interesting to think because- I don't know if this is more of like, oh, it's like a year in review. How did this go? Or is it like, okay, we have a big problem here. We really need to reform how we're going to move this moving forward or we're going to have issues. So for me, it's sort of, I like what you said, like a year in review. I find it hard to believe that the NCAA is sort of just going to flip it on their head and flip this whole policy on their head. I find this really unlikely. I think, to be honest, I like hard to gauge like if it's really been completely successful or completely failing after one year. It's really hard to tell. And I sort of like this move to sort of see like, okay, what's what's working? What's not working? How can we make it better in very small incremental ways? Because I find like the NCAA doesn't really make big changes like this without like on the fly. They, they, they take a lot of time to review these policies and make those decisions, especially on a large scale. You know, th- you're right. They can't flip this on their head, even if they wanted to, because they've lost an antitrust lawsuit in Supreme Court three years ago. And that yeah. decision is not changing unless you'd go and challenge it again. So the one thing I can see, because we've seen a lot of like tampering potentials and scandals with recruitment over the years. Oh, really? <laughs> so I think you have to like, I think, I think maybe you're looking to strict to strict to making a stricter, more rigid, like recruiting rule book, maybe on the tamp, like give more harsher fines for tampering and make it clear what that is. So this way coaches think twice, but like we've talked about this Jackson state among all of them, Obviously, Coach Deion Sanders brings credibility, and obviously the appeal of an HBCU to someone who that applies to is there. But if I'm, and again, we talked about this when we were talking about we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I really think you have to focus on what's important and money talks. And we've said this again. And on that note, right? Obviously, this I think it's been overall positive, and I think you'd agree with me on that, Sam. That a fair assessment? Especially because just the athletes having the ability to profit. But as you mentioned something about like harsh recruiting rules, I really don't think that'll make much of a difference because. We see rules being broken all the time by coaches that think they can run the place. And they really do. There is a level of coaches thinking they are above the laws of the NCAA because of how much power they have within their organization. Like in some cases, they even hold more power than the athletic director, which is kind of, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of scary to think about. So there's really nothing you can do to check people's egos at times. That's the scary thing. Yeah. 
And I mean, let's like looking at it from like a transfer portal perspective. It used to be really you had loyalty. You're, you had to be loyal, right? We've seen this. I think there's a lot of a Gen Z thing also, right? No athletes want athletes want to move. How how can Harden force a trade out twice in a in a 13 month span? How can Anthony Davis force his way out of the franchise that drafted the whatever? Like stuff like this. How can LeBron James want to play with, be able to play with his son when he gets drafted? Because he's LeBron, and it's going to happen. And any team would sign LeBron James on a minimum contract to go play with Bronny. So, a lot of stuff like that, like stuff like that. But like the transfer portal, like a couple of years back, they changed the rule. I believe it was last year. It was like when they officially like done done. But people were getting exemptions that you did not have to sit out anymore. The required one year residence period to transfer. So everyone's moving like a free agent speaking poorly on their previous programs and there's no loyalty anymore. Right. And, and like, let's begin to talk about the players. Right. I want to focus on the coaches right now because we've seen stuff this past year that we have not seen before. We saw two major big players in college football head coaches leave mid season to take on new jobs. Brian Kelly left for a 10 year deal from Notre Dame to go to LSU. After Coach O was forced out, Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma to go back to USC, got 100 million, basically got over 100 million. The contract was for 95, but got like two highest houses in a private college football. Highest paid in college football. Yeah, Lincoln Riley got a ridiculous, they got, they found ridiculous amounts of money for this. And they were able to do this mid, like, how do you quit on your team midseason? Like, and we're not even talking players anymore, right? Obviously, like over the years, a lot of quarterbacks, but I truly think player transfers overall the overall majority of them are more for playing time and exposure than anything else. And obviously we've extended away circumstances, fight with the coach, re, like other emotional or mental or physical reasons. They have, they can't, they can't be at school anymore, but most of the player ones are honestly for playing time. And that's understandable. Like that I can get behind. Y'all know why they can rally that. Go to the SEC. Oh, that too. Yeah, but like money, like again. He didn't want to have to go to the gauntlet of the SEC. And yes, the money was there, but that's the big reason. He like sort of chickened out in a way. And Lincoln Riley wasn't ready for that. And I'm more ashamed at Brian Kelly than I'm Lincoln Riley. Really? Because when Brian Kelly left Notre Dame, right there for the college football playoffs. Do you know how demoralizing that is for a team where your coach basically quits on you? mid-season with two games left in the season and you have a chance to make the college football playoffs not demoralizing that is to a locker room I mean, oh, that is like absolutely demoralizing I sam shocked by that at the timing of it all yeah the timing was surprising for me and like now look at usc wait then, till least after the season yeah like oklahoma now had two quarterbacks that played deep, that were decently high recruits neither of them are there anymore spencer rattler after getting benched rightfully is, go, is now going to South Carolina and the other USC Caleb Williams went to go join back with his boy Lincoln Riley. So there's no, and again, again, the loyalty is not there, but NIL also in a sense, a name in the transfer portal have enabled these two rule, new rules in the past calendar year, transfer portal was end of April and NILs begin July have a, enabled college sports to become somewhat of a player's league in a sense. I mean, this obviously does not apply to everyone, but this is 
this is more of an application of the start, right? Like, like the elite talents. And if I'm a young, if I'm like someone on a roster, there's always been transfers. Like if I was someone who's on 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 a, like an FCS or a subdivision D1, I might, and depending on the sport, I might go down a division and get exposure. Like if I wasn't playing, but now knowing that there's always going to be spots open on D1 teams because everyone's constantly moving, that's not a case anymore, and that's makes it harder on D2 and D3 schools to be able to get that that talent they would have otherwise gotten. Oh my God, I want to push back on your point against loyalty. And it's, there's no, there is loyalty still in college football, but it's not to the teams, it's to the coaches. We see that with Lincoln Riley. He literally brought Caleb Williams with him. We see like the loyalty is towards coaches because that brings credibility. A lot, a lot of players from Lincoln Riley's USC, from, that, from Oklahoma are coming to USC. And that's probably going to be a trend. A lot of those recruits that were probably committing to to Oklahoma. They, a lot of them decommitted and are going to where? USC. The same, we can be seeing that trend happening a lot when coaches move, so are the players that are going with them because there's a certain level of like loyalty towards the coach, not the program anymore. That's, I think, where the diff that we need to like, size that difference, the difference, like the loyalty of the coach, but not the program. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a good point, Sam, right? We've seen a lot of that move in recent years. And I think that's important. There's still loyalty there. And you see how important these football coaches are to their schools because, right, and we're going to get into the revenue in a second here, like the, the money, a lot of these top schools, the major, the vast majority of their revenue comes from football teams. So paying Lincoln Riley or Brian Kelly in close, the South. close to $100 million over a ten over a decade, you're gonna want the expectation is that the ROI they're bringing is significant, right? The recruits they bring in, the money they're bringing in. In the like, for example, example, have you seen the proposal for UCF's new football stadium? Do you see the amenities that they're adding? No, I have not. Enlighten me. Lazy river, <laughs> a lazy river, a pool. Like, I'm sorry. Yes, you want to keep your athletes happy. What? They're also in Orlando, so it's like they're on a coast. They can't do the beach. Come on. I mean, look, look your Raiders. What are our priorities at? I mean, your Raiders literally put a nightclub in the back of the end zone in Allegiant Stadium. So <laughs> I think it's a lot of different things. And it, like, again, obviously revenue is a significant portion of the money that comes in. But TV deals are big. Not to mention the Big Ten is has a new contract that's got to be negotiated within the next calendar year likely going to be the first billion dollar college sports TV contract we're going to see just based on the markets are set and what's going to happen. I've seen a couple interesting ones. The one that intrigued me, the, a lot of the big networks, like the same players you normally see ESPN, TNT, a lot of these networks, Amazon might put a bid in. That was the one that, like similar with the for Thursday Night football. Now I think that'd be an interesting bid. I mean, I'm intrigued to see how that turns out. And I think that's a look, look how much of a boon that is for the 14 teams in this conference. Because that the NCAA as a functions is a nonprofit. So they have to send that money out. And pre-pandemic, they bring in over between over 800 million, close to sometimes even upwards of a billion dollars a year. And obviously football over the course of the season generates the most revenue. But the one event that get, brings them in the most is the men's basketball tournament, March Madness. Right, that actually the the NCAA that one brings in that one's the one that that event alone brings in the eight hundred million. The NCAA makes even more than that, but they also have like in addition to the eight hundred 
20, 30 million they made the last one pre-pandemic, $130 million in ticket revenues. And as much as the football season generates a lot for each of the schools, that money the NCAA brings in over the course of the tournament funds a lot of the smaller sports. So because of the pandemic and short season, no tournament, limited of fans, a lot of that money was lost. And we talk about that. So interesting. Yeah. And I want to pull up a graphic right now. And this won't be available uh, for you guys on the uh, Spotify, but YouTube will be able to see it. Just looking at the NCAA's finances for a second. There's some, this is the revenue from 2020. They do this by decade. So just look, this is division one, all sports and generate revenues. How much the school made, right? FBS autonomy, by the way, is a reference to the power five. Non-autonomy is the mid-major FCS is FCS. And then subdivision are the smaller ones. So the meat, this is the median price, by the way, for 2020. So this might be the, not the greatest indicator was the median power five school generate a hundred point hundred two million in revenue in revenue other stuff that was from like games ticket sales whatever total revenues marketing other brand deals wound up being 114 and then ex- and the total expenses outweighed what the revenues were for them the mid major had a slight profit slight de- about a five hundred thousand dollar deficit for FCS and quarter of a million for subdivision. We can go to D2, D3, it's even worse numbers, right? Net revenue expenses, a bit lost, 9%, 97% down because of that. They're making so much more before this. And then even the amount of like the negatives here, you see the dollars, Sam, like the graphic's pretty telling. And if we go to D2 for a second, just to pull that up, football versus non-football, it's a bit different there. Significant drops. And you see, but you see the discrepancy in the numbers from D1 to D2. Like I, I was about to ask, like the discrepancy between the app, between the sport itself, like you mentioned, the discrepancy between the difference in each sport, I think is the biggest thing. We notice how football is really bringing in so much more than everything else. Yeah. And we talk about like reforming college sports and should the money be more evenly distributed. But I honestly think the system right now is not terrible because you need to put that money in a football program in order to fund your other sports. Right, it's very difficult to fund all the subsports that we don't think about that are important because they are Division One sports. And no, at Rutgers, we have a, a couple dozen teams, and you guys at UMass also do. Right, hockey's a harder one to fund. We'll get into hockey later. There are three sports really that make money. Like basketball makes a lot of the tournament, but not much more of the season. Football makes the most probably overall, but those two are the top two. Baseball barely breaks even. Nothing else is in the black. Every other sport is in the red. Right, yeah. And it's just, it's sort of sad. When we think about collegiate athletics, the first thing people think about is football. But we don't, we forget to realize that we have so many other talented athletes playing so many other incredible and important and equally as important sports out there. And they're giving up their lives and a lot of their autonomy in college to play, play, at, a, play at some of the highest levels of competition. Yeah, and just looking at right now, like I put the D1 chart back up. This is the men's, right? We saw the overall graphic earlier. Net significant net positive for the men's plus percentages for the most part across the board, a bit lost in the revenues and the expenses, but that was also because of COVID. Uh, slightly less loss in the non. Now, if we go to women's, 
I mean, the numbers don't lie. People aren't watching women's sports, and it's sad because there's a lot of really amazing talented athletes and a lot of awesome sports. But there's a reason I think we need to keep pumping money into football. That's like, is it easier to double down? Right? There's in, in goal setting and philosophy. There's this Sam. There's this thought process of having 80% of your outcome come from, have 80% of your production come from your top 20%. So if my top 20% is football and men's basketball, 80% of my production would be there to fund everything else. So from that philosophy, I think you have to keep like putting more money into those sports. And we have to talk about like a lot of programs, especially in the D1 sphere among others have shut down because like just COVID was so hard financially on a lot of programs to keep up what they've been doing pre-pandemic have shut down sports. And it's sad to see because a lot of these athletes will compete for a while for their whole lives to get to this level. And I think part of the reason, as you mentioned, we touched on it earlier in the show, Sam, we did was that a lot of these athletes are not going to go pro or go Olymp- or, or be an Olympian. There's a very small percentage of them. So it's really a four-year experience where you're getting a free ride among other things, um, among being a professional athlete, because let's be real, especially in the football sphere. Remember Marcus Spears has said this so many times on get up on NFL live on first take at LSU. You were athlete, you were football player, first student, second. And I think that weighs heavy. And just looking at this discrepancy here, these are the medians. These are not like, this is taking the median, right? We're talking like the, the, the power five at the bottom. So we're looking at like your Nebraska's among your other schools that aren't really playing that well. And comparing it with your Alabamas, your Dukes, your UNCs, your Michigans, your UCLA's, and that's where the median winds up coming. But to look at, let's look at this discrepancy for a second in D two. And this is women's. There's still not as much, but look at the men's here. The men's actually lost more in D two. And looking at D three, just for that in a second, roughly the same split, percentage wise. So, but we, the money's in, we know the money's in D1. We know the, we know where the money is. And I really think that the, these, a lot of these bigger schools need to figure out ways to get more revenue. And because right at the end of the day, Sam, it is a business. A few bit technical difficulties real quick. I'm back to it right now, Bob. I caught a few things, what you said overall. And yeah, you're right. The discrepancy is, Yes, for lack of a better word, it's it's great. It's crazy that, especially with women's sports, it's crazy that we're just not funneling money into it. And it's like, it's a sad thing because people are so unwilling to make a change that we we have to work with what we we're victims to the system. We have to work with what's been doing best because we're afraid that how much we're gonna lose and to take that risk. Because even though there really could be some money in these sports in the lacrosse, the hockeys, and especially in women's sports. There's some elite competition. The UMass women's basketball team just set a record for wins in a season. That's some, I recommend people go out play women's basketball game. Watch women's basketball game. There's some really efficient, great strategic competition. There's some real amazing stuff. There's some amazing athletes in women's sports, and I think that's, we need to, I think the NSA really needs to take a good look in the mirror and figure out what the heck they're doing, especially the way society is going. If they don't Sort of get with the times, really don't know how it could be catastrophic for them. And we've seen that when they lost March Madness, they lost pretty much all of their revenue from multiple years because it brings in so much. So the NC needs to find a way to not have to put all their eggs in one basket. You know, Sam, 
I mean, I believe on that same site I was showing earlier, the NCAA, for at, like the first year of COVID was after the, 2021 was planning about like 660 million to teams in terms of, to schools in terms of funding, went up slashing to 225, right? It was, that's a 60, that's one third of what they're supposed to give out. And it's a lot of money that comes in there. And right, and you got to double down on what works. Basketball is obviously the easier stuff with basketball. But right, the biggest March Madness is coming up. We're going to talk about March Madness. We're going to talk about March Madness later later in the week. We have it. We're going to dedicate an episode of that, likely Friday. And but like, how does the NBA? How does the NCAA go from here to, to be able to get that pre-pandemic numbers and try and make it, literally try and make a billion dollars over the course of March and April? Well, it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to like you said. I get they get a billion dollars in revenue. They're playing catch up for the past three years now. I think it has to come with like utilizing sports betting gone an uptick in a lot of states it's probably going to become legalized in a lot more states as the year goes on but if they find a way to utilize that that can definitely bring in a lot more outsourced revenue from there and i think also trying to publicize the women's ncaa tournament like we said there's some real competition there and again if they keep putting all their eggs in the men's tournament they're not diversifying their portfolio in a way there's really only one source of revenue they really find a way to build up the women's events because there is some insane competition um mitch there's this girl from iowa she's like She's been shooting the lights at like seven. I forgot her name. She was like, I saw her. I saw some highlights. She was pulling up from Accor like it was nothing. I, I gotta find this. Is bothering. This is, I'm sorry. This is really bothering me. You know what, Sam? I think there's one more thing that really is gonna change it, and it might anger a few people. But sorry, I had to get that out there. It was really bothering me. She's an you, absolute I, baller. What was her name? Absolute baller. Look her up. Look her up. She's ridiculous. Kaylin Clark out of Iowa. One's basketball. Uh, to me also, right, we've seen this trend happen in the U.S. in the past month or so as Omicron's been settling down. But a significant portion, obviously, TV, marketing, betting, merch, whatever. Tickets was a significant por- – ticket revenue was a significant portion of the money they made pre-pandemic. Lifting COVID restrictions, getting concessions back in the stands, get more people – get as much people as possible – is likely your best bet to optimize the amount of ticket revenue you can get in this year's tournament. Your control though. They can't, if they rely on that, that's doomed to fail. Cause they can't, it's a hard sell to go to state governments and get those to leave lift it, especially in certain States. Like, yes, they have, they can't just rely on that. It's a very, very hard sell to say like, Oh, Hey, can you have co-restrictions so we can play March madness? Given the priorities and given like all the suffering that's going on, I find that to be a hard sell, but, I agree with you, but it's so out of their control on that point. I don't think it's as out of their control as you think. Rutgers last week actually announced that concessions are coming back to the rack for the rest of this, for the rest of this, for the remainder of the year. We're also, what? It's still the rack, still the rack. And right. Obviously you still have masks are required as well as proof vaccination or PCR test three days before, but New York and New Jersey in the past week or in the past, in the past weeks have, remove mask mandates for businesses as well as for in New Jersey, March 7th, starting in schools, mask mandates are gone. And we're seeing this in the North, obviously they've been trending in the South for forever. So right in the South, in the Midwest, I think are more likely we're going to have to look to generate ticket revenue just based on those on, on COVID policies. And I really think that they're, I don't know if they're going to hit 130 million ticket sales, but they're going to definitely get back to some percentage of that. This, off season and right, Sam, you mentioned about diversifying 
their double on, on what sports they look up into. What are sports you see that the NCAA has to put a lot of focus into that they're not right now? They could probably generate more. Oh, sports that come to mind, but the one I want to focus on the most is college hockey. College hockey is a hockey in general is a sport that very much in terms of the big four that we talk about, whatever category out of baseball, basketball, football, baseball, basketball, football, hockey is just kind of there in terms of revenue. Hockey doesn't even compare to those three sports and it's showing in the discrepancy in college hockey as well. And these college hockey players, I am blessed to go to UMass where they play the, the players that are on the team and the players they play against even freshmen, a lot of these guys are getting drafted to the NHL. Insane. The fact they're able to have that luxury at the plate to watch at the highest level and hockey can, there's a very unique market opportunity here. And it, it may not be the best option, but I really think there's a real upside to it, given that it's something that can really rile. It's a sport that you get riled up fans in a basketball in, in an arena, watching people go at it. Hockey's always been such an exciting sport, especially for college kids who have a very short attention span is a sport that can really appeal to them. You know, and I think it's interesting because we've seen programs around the country try and grow it, right? Like, obviously, if to start, it, it's it's hard to build D1 program. It's hard to build a program as a D1 program, like, off the get-go. So you either have to start as a short club and build it up. It might take you a couple of years, but I think it's a worthwhile investment, specifically in the Northeast still, where we're, a lot of the, as much as we have the historic program, right? You mentioned UMass, Cornell, BU, a lot of the Ivies, Quinnipiac, like, a lot of stuff in, what? Minnesota teams. Right, a lot of in the northern region of the country. We've seen stuff in Arizona, right? You, I, I, it's, it's a harder market to dip into in other regions of the country, but it doesn't mean it's worth trying. And I think, obviously, I don't think soccer is really going to be, like, as much as it's a great game, but it's not something, it's not really Americanized enough to the point where, like, I think it's the best I, I, would, I would push back on that. I think soccer in the U.S. is very much on a rise. I can, I, we can do a whole other segment about it, but I would push back on that, to be honest. I think lacrosse, I, I want to talk about lacrosse for a second, actually. Rutgers women's actually was down a lot yesterday against Georgetown, came back on six on insert to win the game, 17-16. That was, that was exciting. And lacrosse is a sport, I think, they, I, I don't, I think because there's like three or five professional leagues, it's really hard to decipher, like, because there is, there isn't an antitrust, there isn't one main league, but both men's and women's different games. But I really think that, that, like, if you're asking me like one sport on both sides, where it should be prioritized, I think lacrosse is the one that makes the most sense again you mentioned short attention span also and, the, and more over hockey for a region purpose because lacrosse can be played where weather wise you it's kind of hard to put a hockey rink on campus in florida especially at Rutgers, we don't we have a club our our hockey team is d1 club not even d1 because we can't we have to have a rink on campus and that's a significant investment to make and if you don't think you're going to get a return on return on investment there it's really hard but Sam, to me, there's one sport I really think the NCAA really should be pushing right now. Cool. It's circumstantial. Opening weekend was this weekend. You got to push college baseball more, right? We mentioned at the beginning of the show, your two biggest money makers are football and basketball, men's basketball. College baseball is the only other sport in the black. Now, let me tell you why. Obviously, it's only a little biased, but yeah. ML, the MLB right now is still in a lockout. Although there isn't this, although there is a decent percentage of players, I'd say probably, I'd probably say there's a significant, I'm not sure if it's the majority of plurality, a significant plurality or, or minority of players in the MLB right now, our college play are, were drafted out of college. You have this opportunity to get a lot of these cultures that we see in, we see with football, we see in basketball, 
obviously you have to focus on the Vanderbilts and the Mississippi States and the Floridas and the Georgia Techs and the UCLA's and like all the Florida, Texas, California, gotta be your three areas you're hitting. But for a baseball fan right now, getting fed up with the MLB because there's nothing going on. The lockouts have done traction. The league's not owning up to anything. And we talked about NIL, right? You can get brand deals with players. Like who wouldn't want to see stuff like that happen? Obviously we can go through the stars in recent years. Like Vanderbilt's the one that comes to mind. Jack Leiter, Walker Bueller, Dansby Swanson, Austin Martin, Kumar Rocker. Factory. And, and not to mention, right, we've seen Pete Alonzo come out of Florida. Florida State with Joey Bart, UCLA, obviously much longer. Matt McClain. Bryce Harper, Bryce Harper was Bryce Harper was a ju- JUCO pick, but like I really think though there's a niche here that isn't explored by enough fans, and if the NCAA wants to double down on something that's actually already producing them profit, it's the most likely one, and we don't know when the MLB is going to get back together. And if you into this next month can get enough college age fans ingrained in a baseball game, and as you mentioned, Sam, it's definitely hard, right? And softball included here also. Because we do need more diversification, but I'm focusing on baseball specifically because they do make positive revenue. And when we talk about baseball, the hardest thing baseball and always will be is that there's just not a lot of college baseball players that make it big in the MLB because a lot of kids are either coming from outside sources or straight from high school. And we're seeing that trend. That's why it's always going to be the knock on college baseball. But you said because it's a unique opportunity for college baseball to gain some popularity, to appeal to kids to not just go right out of high school and to get and because I think we can get kids. I think coming out of college, you can get the a lot more experience and maybe they have a chance to make it to the league quicker. Given all the uncertainty with the minor league stuff, I think going to college can be an appealing option and playing college baseball with if given the opportunity, it can build up that prestige and that and just build the programs at each schools i think it's just we can maybe see a trend of a lot more kids going to play college baseball or scholarships and money being thrown around to build those programs up i think it could be a nice opportunity like i think it benefit both the mlb and college baseball to be completely honest and i think and you made a good point there sam about right not a lot of college the percentage of college players getting the mlb is not likely because the percent it takes a long time to get there Right, and we saw it in the in 2020 when Garrett Crochet was drafted by the White Sox in the first round, went straight to the majors. At the bullpen, wicked 102 mile an hour fastball, by the way. But like stuff like like that doesn't happen. We've we've had like the last time that happened was Mike Leak over a decade prior. So it doesn't happen that David Price coming out of the bullpen for the Rays, and in their 2008 run, I I, I really think that in order for this to happen, like it has to be doubled down, getting Greenwood programs, and like not to mention like. We have Nick Saban. We obviously retired. We have Coach K. We got Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt, right? Like you have, and among other schools where you have coaches that stay a while. I really think that in order for this to work, you have to use NIL, use their use the marketing, and take advantage of what's in front of you. And to me, this is like the elephant in the room right now, knowing the MLB is not really any close to coming to an agreement on a lockout. To play devil's advocate for a sec. Lockout has left a lot left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. It's turned off a lot of things. I think baseball is going to lose a ton of fans, especially amongst our generation that are trying to get into it because people see baseball as a white man, as a white, white man's game. And when you see it in college, the I guess the flip side of it is that people will see that in college. Bat, we see that all the scandals around college sports and just college as a whole. 
people will sometimes look to baseball and be like, oh no, are we perpetuating that? Which could be a scary thing. So just playing devil's advocate, that's definitely something that they need to make sure they tighten up if they're going to try to build this up. To refute your point, look at the top stars of the MLB right now. None of them are American. There's like Besides for Mike Trout, right? Otani, Tatis, Vlad, Juan Soto, Acuna. And the NBA also, the NBA diversifying but like especially amongst our generation where everything can very much be sort of our generation where people are very a lot or a lot more sensitive to a lot of different things people want to take a stance more which is a great and a great thing the mov needs to make sure they're sensitive to that if they want to get those kinds of viewers and that, that has to have and that has to be perpetuated down the line to college baseball as well so it's that i got to make sure they're careful with how they go about this process i don't think it's as much of an issue as you think and frankly i don't think i think right now the focus should be getting more viewer attention Regard and then work on the other stuff later because if no one's watching you, then it's hard to care. No, you're right. Then you don't necessarily have a platform. All right, now time, and that was a lot. That was a lot. Wraps up our college segment. A lot of difficult but interesting topics that we don't normally get to talk about. That I think should we talk about more, especially being questions of topics we want to come forward. Please DM us on Twitter at Highland Sock. Twitter, let us know. We are happy to take fan take fan suggestions. We are very open to any topics. We love we love the dialogue. We love to talk. It's stuff we talk about with our friends all the time. This is something that we love to do. We love to hear your feedback. Drop us, drop it in the Twitter, drop it in the YouTube comment section. Please let us know. We love to hear from you. All right. And that concludes this section. And Sam, now on to our favorite segment of the show. Hot of the day. All right, Sam, you're going first today. Everybody. And anybody who watched All-Star Saturday night last night, specifically the dunk contest, pity you. I am with you. That was the worst dunk contest I had ever seen in my life. And I'm going to reinforce something that I've been for about two, three years now. I heard this on Inside the NBA like two, three years ago. Shout out Charles Barkley. Make the three-point contest the last event of the night. Think about this logically. You have the three-point contest in terms of star power events in all-star Saturday night. You got the star power of the competition. We just had Carl Anthony Towns completely destroy the big man narrative. Hats off to him. I think we need to make the three-point contest the last event of the night. It's when all the stars are out, the best shooters, some of the best players in the NBA take place in that contest. And I think that needs to change. We saw the dunk contest. People are just running out of ideas because we've had so many great dunkers over the years. I think Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon set the bar way too high and no one's ever going to get to that for a while. So that the three-point contest should be made the last event of All-Star Saturday night. but And also the dunk contest was just absolutely trash. That's no other way to put it. Congrats, Dobie Toppin, though. Put a banner up in the garden for that. Yeah, definitely. All right, because it's a dub, it's a 2-0 today, I get to get two Hawks of the day. And uh, first off, happy birthday to the one and only Samuel Kinches. Turns 20 on this great day, Sunday in 2022. Sam, it's a pleasure doing this with you. I'm happy. We, even though we're not together right now, we get, I, I, in my present day, I get to do this with you three or four times a week for this week. Actually, this is a bonus episode. So uh, that's, that should be fun. It's, it's, it's fun. I really enjoy. I miss you, brother. Hope to see you soon. Really enjoy your birthday when we're done here. And my other hawk of the day, I saw Uncharted last night. Tom Holland is the, is the, is the man for all, for all the short Kings out there. Just pointing it out. What does the dude not do well? Like, I, I'm curious. I, remember, I saw something on Twitter. He was talking about the stunts he was doing for Uncharted. He's saying some of the stunts that he was doing 
was harder than anything he did for Spider-Man. There were times he was up like 100 feet in the air and just unhinged and was doing like, this guy is an absolute machine. One of the better actors we've seen in a while. I saw it last night. Good movie. We'll do it for our very first dialogues, for our real first dialogue segment, so to say. We really enjoy it. Looking forward to more in the future. Coming up, we will have back-to-back episodes for the first time ever. Tomorrow, we'll be back with an NFL quick off-season preview. We'll talk the new coaching signing of Kevin O'Connell. We'll talk a quick off-season preview. And Mitch will be back with Mock Draft Mondays. Looking forward to that. We'll have a lot to for you there. Get you ready for the off-season and the NFL Draft. We got three more shows coming this week. A lot of content coming up, so stick around. I am Sam Kinchis. I am Mitch Wolf, and we will see you next time on the Highlands Hawk.